start by giving you a short quiz. Okay? I'm going to give you three characters. Now see if you can guess the common theme. And as usual, there are no prizes. Okay? Now here's the first one. He wears a funny looking green hat. He's got a good mate called Little John. And he's often seen in pantomimes. Do you know this man? Robert Hood, also known as Kevin Costner. And here's what Robert Hood does. He takes from what belongs to the rich. Why? Because they can afford it. Now let me give you the second one. He drives a rusty old yellow van. And he shares a flat with someone called Rodney. And he says things like lovely, jubbly, and cushy. Any guesses? Delboy. And here's what Delboy does. He sells useless gadgets to make a big profit. And if you asked him, he would say, it's only business. And now thirdly, have you ever read Shakespeare? Well, he's in Shakespeare's Othello. And that's a play, not just a board game. But you knew that. Now, his name is Iago. Now, listen carefully to what Iago says. He says this. Good name in man and woman, dear my lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse, steals trash. But he that filches from me my good name, robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. In other words, a reputation can be stolen. So that's our three characters. And the common theme, of course, is... And it takes us right to the 8th commandment. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. And it's page number 78 of the Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 20. Verse 15. What does it say here? Well, if you look down, it says this. You shall not steal. Now, in Hebrew, it really has only two words. Not steal. So this morning, I'm going to try and preach in only two words. And we'll still finish at one o'clock, don't you worry. Well, let me give you some facts about stealing. Did you know that when you go shopping, almost everything you buy has a 5% surcharge because of shoplifting. And the Inland Revenue estimates that if everyone paid what tax they should, there would be somewhere between 7 and £15 billion extra every year. And a final one, the Serious Fraud Office estimates that financial crime costs British companies £29 billion annually. Three and a half thousand years later, those same words ring out. You shall not steal. But we're going to find out there's actually a lot more to it. And there are three things to observe about this commandment. And here's number one. First, it means living a fulfilled life. Living a fulfilled life. And there are two things to notice here. Firstly, notice the quest for satisfaction. Now, if you're a Mick Jagger fan, you may have bought the hit record many years ago, 
I can't get no satisfaction. And it goes like this. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. They don't make them like they used to. So, so let me ask you, how do people try and get satisfaction? How do they fill that void in their lives? Well, they buy things. All kinds of things. What is today's motto? Shop until you drop. And if you walk along Princess Street, that's what you'll find. We just want a little bit more. More Marks and Spencer's jumpers. More Ralph Lauren shirts. More CDs of Daniel O'Donnell, or at least someone does. And more links, shower gel. And these are not Christmas clues for Alison. I can't see her, but they're not Christmas clues. We want more. Now, that's what lies at the heart of the Eighth Commandment. Listen to this. In a recent survey of young people, over half said they would feel a failure if by the age of 30 they didn't have a long-term partner, money in the bank, a senior career position, and a good car and home. And now here's the point. It's not that these things are wrong in themselves, obviously. It's when they become the most important thing to us. And it's then it becomes an idol and it never satisfies. Boris Becker, the German tennis player, once said, he said this, I'd won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich, I had all the material possessions I could want, money, cars, women, everything. And he continues, I know this is a cliche, it's the old song of the movie and pop star who committed suicide. They had everything. Yet they are so unhappy. I have no inner peace, he says. Question. What had gone wrong? Why was Becker so unhappy? Answer. He was trying to find satisfaction in things and not in the one who is Lord and God. And that is idolatry. You see, idolatry is when things, often good in themselves, are worshipped as if they were God. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16. You cannot serve both God and money. And then the original Greek, the word for money here is the word mammon. J. John, in his book 10, comments, By making mammon our gods, we open the door to stealing. The reason is simple. Gods impose their own rules on their believers. And mammon's requirement of his followers is that they acquire more. How you acquire more simply doesn't matter. Just get it. So that's the first thing to notice. The quest for satisfaction. And now secondly, the quest for integrity. Now I wonder, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word integrity? Guys against girls playing cranium, I think not. Well here's how Kent Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, defines integrity. He says this, Integrity characterizes the entire person, not just part of him. Listen, he is righteous and honest through and through. He is not only that in the inside, but also in outer actions. And you'll notice, it's a mark of someone whose fulfillment is in God. And it will show in three ways. Number one, Integrity in our relationships. 
The French novelist Antoine France once quipped, Never lend books, for no one ever returns them. Amen. The only books I have in my library are books that other people lent me. So, so here, amen to that as well. So here's a task for next week. Take a look in your attic, your CD racks and your bookshelves for things that you may have borrowed and not returned. And if anyone finds my silver pen, can I have it back please? And all that we do, remember the golden rule that Jesus gave us. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Matthew chapter 7. So that's number one. Integrity in our relationships. Number two, integrity in our workplace. Now you may have seen the game station poster on South Charlotte Street. Yes, get your sick note ready, it says. Well, integrity in our workplace means not calling in sick to play computer games. It also means not inventing your expense accounts. Waiting until you get home to make a long private phone call. It also means making an honest sale and putting in a full day's work. Proverbs 16 says this. Honest scales and balances are from the Lord. And just like Zacchaeus, that can mean putting things right. In his book on the Ten Commandments, playing by the rules, Stuart Briscoe relates the story of W.P. Nicholson. Now, W.P. Nicholson was a famous Irish evangelist. And he used to preach the gospel to the shipyard workers in Belfast. And here's what happened. Listen to this. They went straight from their tasks in their work clothes and filled the church. Then W.P. Nicholson would preach to them powerfully, spreading conviction, insisting on repentance and restitution. Many men accepted Christ and started to bring back everything they had stolen from the yards. In the end, the authorities had to make a public announcement. Will all these men stop uh, will all those men attending the meetings of Mr. W.P. Nicholson please stop returning stolen goods? We have nowhere to store them. So number one, integrity in our workplace. And now number three, integrity in our nation. Here's a question. Are the poor being robbed? Well, let me give you some facts from Tear Fund. According to Tearfund, the rules of international trade are unjust. They rob poor countries of £1.3 billion every day, which is 14 times what they receive in aid. And if you watched the news last night, you may have seen that in December in Hong Kong, there will be a World Trade Organization Summit. So as you leave this morning, you will find a postcard on the stairwells from Tearfund which you can sign on the back and send it to London ahead of this summit. Micah chapter 6 says this, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so firstly, obeying the Eighth Commandments, it means living a fulfilled life. And now secondly, it means displaying a family trait. Now, have you ever watched the Waltons on TV? Yes? Well, I used to watch the Waltons. And the Walton family had a distinctive trait. Do you remember? 
before they turned the lights out, yes, they would all say something. And it was exactly the same thing every night. So annoying. What was it? Good night, John Boy. That's right. And that's what they always said. It was their family trait. Now here's the point. A family trait of those who belong to the Christian community is giving. And that is the essence of Christianity. And catch this. Whether it's giving your money, giving your possessions, giving your time, or something else, giving is the best antidote for becoming a slave to possessions. J. John comments helpfully once again. He says this. Every act of giving giving is an act of rebellion against a life dominated by possessions or wealth. And if we have made a practice of regular giving, then it is hard to be tempted to steal. And there are three things to observe here. Firstly, the Christian family is marked by generous giving. And it begins by looking up to the generous giving of God. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant thinker, and he put it very well. He said this about God. God loves us, not because we are lovable, but because he is love. Not because he needs to receive, but because, get this, he delights to give. And if you think about it, everything you have comes from God. The food that you eat, it comes from God, not from Tesco's. And the clothes that you wear, it's not from Jenner's, if you're lucky. The home that you live in, it's not from Barrett or Wimpy. And the beauty that you see in creation, everything we have, comes from the Creator God. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And if you recall, that's what King David prayed. Remember in First Chronicles 29? When people were bringing their gifts to build the temple, King David prayed, But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Listen, everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. So firstly, generous giving. Secondly, the Christian family is marked by thankful giving. Now last Sunday, two numbers made people in Scotland very happy. Just two little numbers. And what were those two numbers? 18-11. Scotland beat the Samoa rugby team 18-11. But let's not mention New Zealand. Well, if you're a Christian, you have so much to be thankful for. Listen to what Galatians chapter 2 says. It's an amazing truth. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And what can possibly compare with that? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Maybe as you look back, you can echo these words. I stand amazed, amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. And so how do we respond? We simply give back to God 
thankfully, as Paul could write, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So number one, generous giving. Number two, thankful giving. And number three, the Christian family is marked by purposeful giving. Now imagine this. Imagine that you were born in India. And you are one of 240 million people called the untouchables. You have to use a separate well from other people. And if you enter a temple, it is abandoned. And you are so despised that even your shadow must not pass over someone of a higher social class. Well, as we heard last Sunday on the mission weekend, that is a daily reality for the Dalit people in India in 2005. And last Sunday, many of you wanted to help. You see, a trait of the Christian family is looking out and giving purposefully to those in need. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Why? Because we are simply God's steward, stewards in his creation. That's the second thing to notice. Obeying the Eighth Commandment, it means displaying a family trait, and that is giving. And finally, it means trusting a faithful God. Now, at this time of year, many of us are thinking about presents. And maybe you're like me, and you're thinking, when am I going to start the Christmas shopping? And how much will I spend this year? £5 or £10? And what on earth am I going to buy then? Well, a big part of giving and receiving presents is trust. Do you trust that particular person to buy you a nice present? Or does experience tell you otherwise? I know someone who went to London on business and for a present he brought back his wife a set of mouse mats for the computer. <laughs> thinking they were dinner plate mats. But it's the thought that counts. Therefore, should you give that person a very detailed shopping list, just in case? And yes, I get the detailed shopping list. Trust. Now, obeying the Eighth Commandment, it means to trust. It means trusting a faithful God to give us all that we need. Now, I want us to look at three reasons why we trust in God. And you'll notice, it means thinking about the Trinity. Okay, so as we close, Firstly, he is a God of absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. Let me give you two examples of God's perfection. Now, for the first one, I want you to think big. Okay? Take the expansion rate of the universe. It is fine-tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. Now, if it was changed by just one part in either direction, a little faster or a little slower, the universe could not support life. And that is perfection. Professor John O'Keefe, who works for NASA in the States, says this, a scientist. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate 
the universe was created for man to live in. Now, for the second example, I want you to think small. Okay? Take a snowflake. And we saw millions of snowflakes on Friday. Well, let me tell you about a snowflake. Science lesson number two. A snowflake, get this, begins by forming around a speck of dust. And then grows into a tiny hexagonal prism, just a few microns in size. And as the crystal grows, grows, it often, it's often blown about in the sky with the air and temperature constantly changing, which gives the crystal its final shape. And apparently, no two crystals are ever the same. The things you learn at Charlotte Chapel. Now here's the point. God controls the universe, and he makes every snowflake unique. He is, a, he is perfect in all of his ways, and that is why we can trust him. Secondly, he is a God of abundant provision. Now, if someone came and asked you a very direct question, what is the greatest need that you have ever had? Ever had? How would you respond? Would it be guidance on buying Christmas presents? Maybe a new Porsche? Or a holiday home in the south of France? Or the answer sheet to my next exam? Well, here is our greatest need. And get, get this, it's the same for all of us. Our greatest need is to be rescued from our sin. Why? Because we have all rebelled against the Holy God and we deserve his righteous judgment. Let me quote you from Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist. Ravi Zacharias says this. A man rejects God, neither because of intellectual demands, nor because of the scarcity of evidence. A man rejects God, listen, because of our moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. And the only one who can rescue us is God's wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And if you come to the place of the cross, you'll find that. Now do you remember, who was the last person that Jesus forgave before he died? It was a thief who was crucified next to him, remember? And on that cross, he recognised that Jesus was being punished unjustly. And do you recall what he said? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus met his greatest needs abundantly. And if he was here this morning, he would sing that song written by Charles Wesley. O love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me hath died. My Lord, my love, my love is crucified. A God of abundant provision. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And now finally, he is a God 
of abiding presence. Last week, you may have watched on television a film called Touching the Voice. And you're all thinking, Richard watches far too much TV. Well, it's about two British climbers in the Peruvian Andes. And one of them was left alone for days. He was injured. Now, here's the promise from God. If you're a Christian, you'll never be left alone. God, the Holy Spirit, has come to live within you. And that's where our assurance comes from in life. It doesn't come from possessions. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so as we close, what is our part? Well, our part is to grow in our walk with God. So let me give you a friendly challenge. How about in 2006, reading through the whole Bible in a year? You can buy a daily guide, and you could go through the entire Bible in 2006. And here's the thing. The more you get to know God through his word, the more you will trust in him to meet your needs. And so in conclusion, this morning we've looked at what it means to obey the Eighth Commandment. It means living a fulfilled life. It means displaying a family trait. And it means trusting a faithful God. And as we close, we can do no better than use the ancient prayer of a man named Agar. And it's found in the book of Proverbs. And it says this. Let me read it to you. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And here it is. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. And say, who is the Lord? Or, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. All that we are and all that we have comes from God. Let us pray.